Amen. You've just heard from what is probably our earliest uh, instruction in the Bible on the Lord's Supper from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be taking on the question tonight of what does the Lord's Supper mean? And I'm going to be doing something that uh, is uh, probably, uh, probably too ambitious, probably unwise. I'm going to say what I think it means. And uh, so we're going to just go through the scriptures. And uh, I'm going to ask for the Lord to help us in that. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a meal to feed our souls, uh, to give us a felt communion with you. I just pray you'd come now, speak, encourage, and meet us at your table at the end as we come there together. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, and I, my, my other disclaimer for the message is uh, Blaise Pascal uh, was writing to a friend, and he wrote, please forgive the, the length of the letter. I didn't have time to write a shorter one. Um, and so uh, that, that's how I feel tonight. Uh, but uh, Lord, Lord, help us. So uh, we do weird stuff at church. I was thinking about this. It, it, some of the things we do are just weird. You know, we, we, we climb into a dunk tank to, together, and, you know, we we get dunked in front of one another or we get splashed in front of one another. And it's not to get a laugh. It's, it's, it's to celebrate something sacred and beautiful. And, and, and we do things like getting excited about a meal with a teeny, it's not even a shot glass, a teeny, 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 tiny amount of grape juice and a tiny little square of bread. You know, we get excited about this together. We do these weird things as a church and we, we talk about blood, ew, you know, and we're not grossed out by it. We celebrate it. And, and, we, and, and here's the real kicker. We, we give thanks that Jesus died. If you said that about anybody else, just, just think about how that would sound. I'm so glad that so-and-so died. That sounds so mean, right? We just do this weird stuff as a church. We, we give thanks for someone who died because that death means so much for us. It's a strange thing we do at church. And tonight, Monday, Thursday, strangely named tonight, we celebrate this meal. And we're going to think about what it means. It takes us into a strange world, a world that's a little bit foreign to us, a world of sacrifice, a world of sacrament, a world of priests, a world of blood, a world of sin. And it's actually the world we live in, although it's not the world that we think of in the modern West. Jesus, if you remember, he was with his disciples. He was uh, in an upper room that they had secured. It was uh, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we'll learn in just a moment from Exodus, were, were two feasts that were together in, in commemoration of the Lord's work, bringing his people out of Egypt, redeeming them from slavery with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And so in the midst of Unleavened Bread, they're going to celebrate Passover together. And there they are. Jesus takes bread and as you read in the Gospels, there's these loaded words. He takes, he blesses, breaks, and gives it to his disciples. Pay attention to those words as you read the Gospels. And he says, take, eat, this is my body. He, he takes a cup, gives thanks, says, drink, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. These are astounding words that Jesus is proclaiming. But what do they mean? They take us back to the Passover. We, we, we just saw that the earliest disciples, the Apostle Paul, 
interpreted Christ as our Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. John the baptizer says what in chapter one? He says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb was a, an, an object that was slaughtered, right? It was, it was a creature slaughtered in place of the Israelites. But what was all that about? It, it was from this Passover. And so in Exodus chapter 12, if you, if you, if you want to flip there, uh, you, can, you can see the story that the Lord commanded his people to have a feast. They have a barbecue with lamb and they roast it and they eat it in haste with their sandals on and their staff in hand ready to go because the Lord is about to bring them out of Egypt. Pharaoh has had them in slavery. They've been in oppression for 430 years, for, for generations. And the Lord has raised up a prophet, Moses, who's going to lead them out. He said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh won't do it. And so the Lord's going to finally break the will of Pharaoh with a final plague. He's going to take away his firstborn son and all the firstborn sons of Egypt. A terrible moment but he gives his people the opportunity for deliverance if they take the blood of the lamb that they slaughter for this meal and they put it on the, the doorpost of their house when the, the angel of destruction comes through, they would be spared. But that night, Pharaoh and his household and all the people of Egypt were not prepared and all of their firstborns were dead. You can imagine the terrible, terrible grief. But at the same moment, you can imagine the incredible relief when the people of God who'd been in slavery now were able to leave freely to go and serve the Lord. And so we may have questions about this, questions about why would God command a blood sacrifice? Why the death? And if those are unsettling you, I can understand that. And we'll come back to that here in a moment, but hold on to that and imagine at least for now being a part of an oppressed people group that's been under oppression for hundreds of years, which has now been redeemed. And now is the opportunity to walk out of slavery into a life that's their own, a life with the Lord who created them and has redeemed them. And the Lord gives them basically three ways to remember this and commemorate this. First of all, they're to keep Passover throughout their generations. That meal that they had, uh, that night that they escape Egypt, they're going to do that every year from year to year. But they get to celebrate it longer. They get a longer party. They get the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We learn about that in chapter 13, verse 3. And in this feast, we're going to see uh, in chapter 3, starting in verse 5, this is something they're going to remember about how the Lord brought them out of the house of slavery. And even generations later, note this in, in chapter 13, verse five of Exodus, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Bugbites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Now think about this. These are generations later. He's talking about the children of their children who will be in the land for generation upon generation. They will keep this Festival and remember what the Lord has done, bringing them out of slavery. But look at the next verses. So they're going to keep this for seven days. Verse seven, they're not going to have any unleavened bread. They won't have any leavened bread seen with you. But verse eight, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall tell your son on that day. Moses was writing not just for his generation right there. He's writing for the sons of generations to come to hear. To hear what again? The father would tell the son. The mother would tell the son. We do this because of what the Lord did for me. You hear that? They have a personal involvement in what the Lord had done. They're saying we were there. The Lord saved us. This is our story. We are the people who have been redeemed by the Lord. Even hundreds of years later, the Lord brought me out of slavery. And so participation in that feast of unleavened bread was uh, something that was, was very personal. But then in the next passage, immediately after that, there's the next way that they commemorate the Lord bringing them out of slavery and the Lord passing over them and having judgment on the Egyptians to bring them out. They have the, the consecration of the firstborn. And it says in chapter 13, verse 11 of Exodus, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. So all who were blessed to have children would consecrate that firstborn, but not like other ancient Near Eastern cultures would they sacrifice this firstborn. No, that's not the way the Lord works. Rather, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens uh, the womb of your animals that are males. These shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you will break its neck. It's graphic. Animal lovers, sorry. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? Again, we're there generations down the road. What does this mean when you see someone who is consecrated and there's a sacrifice in place of this firstborn? You're going to say, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So they are participating in this moment, and particularly in this, there's a substitute that's in their place. They see, that was in my place. Instead of me, it was the lamb. Just like on the night of the Passover when the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost. Instead of the firstborn, it was the lamb. And they would remember throughout their generations. But some of us might be bothered by this, this idea of substitution, this idea of blood. Why does the Lord require blood to forgive to allow people into his presence. Under the law, we learn in Hebrews 9, and if you read the law in the Old Testament, you realize this as well. Hebrews 9.22, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And this Feast of Unleavened Bread, the consecration of the firstborn, it speaks of the Lord's deliverance of his people. It doesn't specifically talk about forgiveness of sins. But elsewhere in the law, there were other sacrifices as well. Particularly in Leviticus, you have the, the sin offering and you have the day of atonement when sin offerings are made for all of the people, including the priests, for all of the sins, all of the wrongdoing, all the way they've broken love of God over their knee, love of neighbor. 
And as these sacrifices of animals, of, of, of donkeys, of bulls, of birds, as those are made in their place, there's a picture of judgment upon their sin and they receive mercy. Well, why must there be shedding of blood? It's because God is just. It's because God is just. The reason why we have all of this bloody imagery is because God is just. Imagine for a moment a, a judge. I've stood before a judge. I don't know if you have. I, I, I trespassed in, in college, and I went into a youth park after hours, and uh, it, it was dumb. It was clearly posted. We did it despite what the sign said. And we were, we were Christians, and we were like, you know what? We're going to own up to it, and we're going to you know, say what we did. We're going to confess that we're guilty. Standing before that judge saying I was guilty was weighty. Guilty. I plead guilty. And he sentenced me. I had to pay a fine for the trespassing. But imagine a judge who just let people go because he felt nice on that particular day or he happened to like that particular person or whatever. What this actually does is, that's not nice. That creates more victims, you realize. Because the people who have been wronged don't receive justice, right? The, the, the poor guy who was the caretaker of that property who had to get up in the middle of the night and call the police because of these dumb college students, he's not going to get to restitution. You know, in more serious situations, in cases of, of murder, in cases of, of theft, if there's no justice, imagine a forgiveness that involves no justice. It's unjust. There must be some punishment paid. And the wonder of the Christian story is that God became the one who took the punishment for us. He became our substitute. In Romans 3, 25 and 26. If you're a note taker, I'm, I'm going through a lot of scriptures really fast. Just write down the, 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 the verses and, we'll, and come back and look at them later. But in Romans 3, 25... Uh, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. The big word propitiation. He was our substitute. He was a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. We'll come back to that. He hadn't yet punished all those sins that came before Christ. Verse 26 God put forth Christ. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. He requires the shedding of blood, ultimately the precious, infinitely valuable blood of Jesus, the Son of God. <coughs> Pardon me, because he is just and merciful. He wants to justify those who have faith in Jesus. And so as, as the people of God had these sacrifices, they were participating in them. They were saying they were there. They were seeing God offering a substitute for them. But ultimately, those pictures were pointing forward to Christ, our Passover lamb, who's been sacrificed finally. We will learn in Hebrews chapter 9, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Once for all, his sacrifice in our place puts an end to the need for sacrifice because we find out in the next chapter, chapter 10, verse four, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's why God had yet to punish those former sins of all the Israelites and all the people of God. They were seeing pictures 
of what God would finally do in Christ. And so, chapter 10, 11 in Hebrews, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's offered the final sacrifice. So all of those ancient sacrifices were pointing ultimately forward to Jesus. We find that there's both continuity and discontinuity, though, between the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, rites that we see between the Lord's Supper and these Old Testament feasts. Because in the Old Testament, they were feasting on, on meat, weren't they? It was lamb. It was the burnt offering. But in the, in the New Covenant, there's no meat because Christ is our meat. We feed on him. We, we taste him and see him through the medium of bread and wine. And this introduces all sorts of questions. Jesus invited those questions. He provoked the questions in John 6. Before uh, we read about the Lord's Supper in John, there's already language that's taking us to that moment, making us imagine that looking back. Jesus said to them in verse 35 of chapter 6 in the Gospel of John, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And all the Pharisees are gathering around thinking, that sounds ridiculous. How are we supposed to eat this guy? That's crazy. This is just crazy talk. He's not bread. And then the Jews are disputing among themselves after he says a bit more in verse 52 and say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus says to them, verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. How uncomfortable to hear that for the first time. Could you imagine? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate in the wilderness, not like that manna. They died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things of all places in the synagogue in Capernaum. You could imagine that day at church. And all the disciples started to go away. They start to leave him, save for the 12, because the, the sayings were just too difficult. And they are difficult. How, how literally do we take these statements? What do we do with them? Some of our neighbors, uh, earnest people in the, the Catholic or Lutheran traditions, uh, for example, they'll, they'll take these statements very literally. I would submit that we're not cooperating with Jesus well if if, 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 if we take him in that way, we're kind of like Amelia Bedelia in that moment, who's, you know, told to put out the lights in the hallway and she hangs out the lights on the, on the clothesline, you know? I think we need to cooperate with his language. He wasn't a loaf of bread standing in front of them. You know, he was a human being. There's cl clearly some degree of metaphor going on. The question is, is it a mere metaphor? Could there be some truth to a reality that we could feed on him? Could this be a sacred metaphor, like a sacrament in our uh, 
tradition and the, the Christians that have come before us. We, we call a sacrament a holy ordinance instituted by Christ where by sensible signs, tasted, seen, smelt, felt signs, Christ and all the benefits of relationship with him are represented, shown forth to us, sealed upon us and applied to us as believers. Could this be a sort of sacred metaphor that we can truly taste and see something special? I would suggest there's something to that. More than a mere metaphor. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 18 And this is getting to the same letter as our reading where we'll finally land. Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That that word for participation is the word koinonia or fellowship, participation. There's a close fellowship, a close participation Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As we partake of this, we have communion with Christ and therefore communion with one another as his body. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel, (coughs) pardon me, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Remember they're saying, we do this because the Lord delivered me. I was there. So partaking in the supper, I'm suggesting to you, see what you think, pray about this. It means we have a special fellowship with Christ in his death. I'm not saying that, that the, magic be, the, the, the bread becomes you know, Christ's physical body by some magic of, of my words. I don't believe that at all. But I do believe that Christ meets us truly. We already know that he's promised that he's with us always. We already know that he's promised where two or more are gathered in in his name, there he'll be. And he seems to have promised perhaps an even more special fellowship as we gather at his table. Something to look forward to. Now, when we come to this table, we're saying we're participating in the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. We're saying like Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We share in his resurrection life. And the good news about that is Jesus, spoiler alert, I know it's still Thursday, but spoiler alert, Jesus rose. He is alive. And so as we come to this table, we're not communing with a dead Christ. We're communing with the living, reigning, risen King And we get to celebrate the reality that Ephesians 2 celebrates that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. And we share in that life now. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So then in the coming ages, he might show forth the incredible riches of his mercy and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's going to be lavishing all of his grace upon us and he's already risen us to new life as we trust in Jesus. We get to taste and see and know that and commune with the risen Christ. John Calvin goes maybe a little bit too far, but I like to run almost as far as he runs on this where he says that it's as though when we take the Lord's Supper by faith, we are we're transported to the heavenly throne room in the very presence of the risen Christ.
This is a feast of our union together. And if it is all these things offered to all who look to Christ in faith, it can be a challenge to us, and it was a challenge to the first century church, because they didn't treat this moment as special as it was. And so Paul says he's not commending them. Uh, the first Corinthian, uh, the Corinthian church had, had some problems, as you read about them. They're like a normal church, in fact, in that way, but even perhaps a little bit more, uh, more normal <laughs> with a lot of problems. Uh, but one of those was that when they came together for the Lord's Supper, uh, folks would treat it like it was like a high school cafeteria or something, or like, you know, a house if you grew up with a lot of brothers, and, you know, if, if food is ready, you better be there on time because they're just going to eat it all and there's nothing left for you if you're late for supper, right? Uh, folks were just treating it like that. Even folks who had the means to have plenty of food at home, while there were people who had very little who went home with nothing. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? You, you go and you eat all you want. You, you drink so much of the wine, you get drunk. And, and mind you, uh, grape juice for, for this sacrament was not invented until 1869. Welch was a Methodist layperson who developed that for the Methodist celebration. Look it up. Regardless, grape juice tonight, it's fine. So, uh, so these folks are going home drunk while someone else doesn't have anything. But this is supposed to be a shared moment where we all get to enjoy the presence, the promise of Christ. And they're leaving people out, people who could use it the most, who are hurting, who would love to know the nearness of their Savior. And so, Paul reminds them of what he'd received. He tells them that this is a proclamation of the Lord's death. It should be an encouragement, an exhortation to one another. And so he says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What is that talking about right there? Uh, that, that's worth pausing on. First of all, uh, I think Charles Hodge, <coughs> a commentator and theologian in the 19th century, was right when uh, he, he wrote that uh, this is not written to, uh, to, to hold back those who are timid and those who are, are guilty sinners from the table. There's no one else at this table besides Christ. <laughs> other than guilty sinners and people who feel like they're unworthy to come. But Jesus says, come without money and buy. Come and eat. Come be nourished. This is a table for sinners. But it seems that those who eat unworthily are those who are not examining themselves. That's one. And two, discerning the body. Examining themselves. Am I coming to this table with a heart that's turning to the Lord, saying, Lord, I know I've sinned, but you're the Lord of my life. I, I turn to you from my sin, whatever it may be, whatever lifestyle that is, whatever hidden thing that is, whatever thing it is interpersonally with another person. You remember Jesus who reminds us 
It was a picture of temple sacrifice, bringing an offering to the temple at that time prior to the Lord's Supper. But if you're going to offer something at the temple and you know you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you, go and first be reconciled. And so we first do that. And so I encourage you, we're the body of Christ. We want to celebrate that as we come to this table. So we make amends. We examine ourselves to see that we're ready. And we discern the body. There's, there's two, uh, two interpretations that I think are both very likely. One is the most immediate one. The second one I think is, is relevant as well. Um, the first one is, is discern the body. Think about the others around you, the body of Christ. In the context, the people were not thinking about others. They were just going and swiping up all the bread. It was probably an actual full meal. And just eating everything, drinking all they wanted, and getting out of there before some of the people who needed food even got in there. They weren't discerning of the others around them. The second uh, reasonable interpretation of this, and it's possible for there to be multiple layers of meaning, uh, the apostles under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were capable, just like you and I, of, uh, of having multiple layers of meaning at times. And so that second discerning of the body would be thinking about the holiness of Jesus and his body that was broken for us that which is symbolized in the supper. So think about this for a second. If uh, flags are important in most nations and in most cultures, and so our flag, our American flag is important to us. It's a symbol of our our nation, of its history, of its values. Uh, For some of us, very specially, of people who have defended our our country, and and we know those people personally. Maybe they have even died defending our country. And so that flag is symbolic of all that. And you can imagine if somebody stomped on a flag how disrespectful that would be, how painful that would be. Because that seems to be disrespecting all these things that you value, this nation that you're a part of, these people that you've loved. In the same way, if we come to this table and we disregard the body as though, as, as, as though this is just an ordinary old meal, as though it's just like pizza and soda or something, you know? If we're not thinking about Christ who's meeting us here and approaching it with reverence and awe and love. This is why we examine ourselves first, so that we're not approaching in an unworthy manner. I don't want to discourage anyone from coming to this table who knows they need a savior, who knows they're a sinner. I encourage you to examine yourselves and to think about what this Sacrament means, finally, we come to that. What does the Lord's Supper mean? Finally, tell us, Pastor Dave. <coughs> Pardon me. I think, of a, uh, I think of a special dinner with a husband and a wife. They've been married 25 years, and they're coming together to celebrate that moment. They made their vows to one another. It's their anniversary. So they're out. There's a nice tablecloth spread over the table. There's candlelight. The waiter, who's dressed nicely because it's a nicer restaurant, comes and pours wine, you know, and actually knows how to twist the bottle and doesn't get it on the tablecloth. It's a special moment, and the husband leans over to his wife and says, I love you, and kisses her. And she looks back at him and says, and I love you. What does the Lord's Supper mean? It means the Lord loves you. This is the renewal of his vows to you. I will never leave or forsake you. 
I loved you from before the dawn of time. I love you now, and I will love you forever. I'll never let you go. And he proved that love for you in Christ, who died for you while you were still a sinner. So take hold of it. This is where Christ, our groom, meets his bride and offers a heavenly kiss on the mouth. A felt, taste, seen experience of his love. That's what this means. Jesus loves you, church. So I pray you would bask in that reality now as we prepare to come to his table. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus and for his love for us. I pray that you would help us to receive tonight the truth that you love us. We, we feel unlovely. We feel unworthy of love, un, unlovable, in fact. Lord, open us up to the wonder that you love us you're crazy about us. You left the comfort of heaven for us, Jesus. Thank you. So take hold of us with that. Let us feel it and know it as you meet us at your table, we pray. Amen. Amen.